Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are executive art director Matt Kenny. Hey, wait. And senior. What? <laughs> I like I'm it. having a little fun. And senior and junior report, junior cub reporter Mike Peckovich. Hey, guys. <laughs> oh, what a scoop. Uh, just kidding. Joining me today are executive art director Mike Peckovich and senior editor Matt Kenny. Uh, let's just get that straight. And let's get one other thing straight. If you like this podcast, get your little butts onto the World Wide Web. Go, uh, go to iTunes, uh, leave a comment, a five-star rating, spread the word to your fellow woodworkers, let them know that this is a really cool podcast about woodworking and tools and all sorts of other neat stuff. Uh, or you can just go to iHeartRadio and you can catch us there. Uh, so, Ed, language, you said. Sorry. Yeah. Am I getting booted off my own podcast? <laughs> yeah. You know, I invented this podcast, Matt. In fact, I have controls of the controls. <laughs> I have control of the controls. You have control of the controls. I can pot you down in, in fancy audio lingo. Yeah. Um, so, Matt, um, yes. uh, before we get to your juiciest segue topic uh, from up north. Well, it's all that, related. Later. Oh, it is already. Well, okay. So here's the deal, Matt. You just returned from a whirlwind tour of... Uh, southern Maine, where you visited the Lee Nielsen Tour. Sorry, Midcoast. Midcoast, whatever. Yeah. Where you visited Lee Nielsen and got to try on Thomas Lee Nielsen's yeah. epic vest. Yeah, <laughs> right. You had yeah. photos taken of you wearing the vest. <laughs> right. I've seen them. Yes. They had a little booth where you could stick your head through and you could have right. photos taken with Thomas's uh, vest. Yeah, I was at the Lee Nielsen Open House, Yeah, uh, which they've been doing for at least three or four years, I think. It's cool. It's a cool event. Um, you go up there and the... They're giving factory tours every, uh, maybe every hour, and you can walk through the factory and see how their tools that are made. That is cool. It is cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And, you know, almost everything is done right there on this one property in Warren, Maine, right off US-1. Uh, I've been on the tour twice before. I did not go on it this time but because uh, I was uh, uh, doing other things. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it is a nice little tour. You can go on it, and uh, the best probably the best thing is when you're in the Lee Nielsen showroom, you can buy tools at ten percent off. Which you is know, quite speaking nice. of buying tools at ten percent off, I did receive an email from Mr. Lee Nielsen um, stating, um, "Dear Ed, um, uh, during the recording of your next uh, regularly scheduled podcast, please ask Matt to stop inferring that we will give him free tools." Do <laughs> um, you care to remark? About, make any remarks about that, Matt? <laughs> Yes, yes. Something I should bring to our editor, Tom McKenna's attention? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Um, but uh, it's a great event because, uh, so not only are there the, the shop tours there, but it's like a, a standard Lee Nielsen event, which they do around the country. There are uh, the Lee Nielsen folks are there, and you can come in and use their tools, and they'll explain how their tools work, and also just generally help you with things like sharpening or technique with hand planing, hand sawing. So there's a huge educational aspect to it but there are also vendors or not vendors but people from other areas of woodworking that are there so we try to go to the lee nielsen events and i was at the lee nielsen up in the house representing the magazine mike you've right. done that Been before. a couple in the past yeah yep and so we get a chance to meet readers and it, which is wonderful and also surprisingly not surprisingly maybe but i met a lot of podcast listeners nice yes it was amazing how many how, how now when i'm out in public at woodworking events, how many people come up and say they listen to the podcast? It's surprising. Neat. 
Um, so, but also, you know, like Peter Follensby was there demonstrating woodworking, his type of woodworking. Uh, Pete Galbert was there. He's written for us. He's a, a chair, maker, chair maker. And he was demonstrating. Mary May, the carver from Charleston, was there. Uh, there was a guy that owns an exotic lumber company up in Maine called Rare Woods, I think, was there. There's a bow maker there, a guitar, an instrument maker. Um, uh, Megan Fitzpatrick from Popular Woodworking was there. We uh, were next to each other. We were sort of bench neighbors, um, which was nice. I'd never met her before. It was nice to meet her. Uh, Chris Bexford was there demonstrating, one oh, of cool. our contributors. Uh, he was demonstrating speed skating, I take it? Yes, speed skating. Chris was a speed skater. Yes, he was. It's kind of an interesting little fact for those of you who don't know. Yeah, there's another Chris there. Chris Schwarz was there doing whatever Chris Schwarz does because uh, I did not get to see any of it. I was always outside while he was inside. Uh, I'm sure he was demonstra- selling his wares and showing people how to make a, a chest of some sort, uh, a tool chest, because he has a couple of different ones. I don't know which one he was demonstrating. Uh, Have you seen the Dutch tool chest? That's kind of cool, where the, the front opens down. Uh, he had one of those there. I like And I that think one. they were making those. He would, he had been teaching a class. Oh, cool. Yeah. I recently built the conformist's tool chest. The conformist. The Reformation tool chest. The Reformation chest. tool chest. <laughs> the Martin Luther that's tool a, chest. That's a reference to, uh, so Chris, for anybody who doesn't know, Chris uh, has uh, the anarchist's uh, tool yes, chest, the book yes. that he has. Well, well, we've joked about the tool chest I want to make before. What? The Rednecks tool chest. What is the... Re- oh, yes. It's like a big plastic box. It's a big Coleman cooler. <laughs> nice. <laughs> With wheels. Right? With wheels. Classy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it was nice, and I got to meet a lot of readers. I got to meet... I met uh, Thomas Mosier and had a oh, short conversation with him. Um, and I met uh, a lot of people from Connecticut, as a matter of fact, in our, neighbor, in our neck of the woods. And uh, I met Sarah and her husband... I believe it's Jonathan. I forgot to write their names down before I came down here. But they work at uh, Sikorsky uh, down the street from us. and uh, Down the street from me, at down least. Down the street from where you live, yeah. So I wanted to say hi to them. I also met a dude that is an astronomy buff. Uh, so it's great. And if you have a Lee Nielsen event in your neck of the woods, you should go because they're cool. Uh, Even if you don't uh, own hand tools or want to use hand tools, they're still very informative. Enough small talk, Matt. All right. Let's get at what people really want to hear about. Sexy Lee Nielsen tool news. Oh, do I have any tool news? I well, know you can't give all these fancy details, but is there anything on the horizon? There could be something on the horizon really? within a few months. Really? Yeah. Are they ever going to make a decent honing guy? That's what I want to know. You know, Mike, I just don't know. Although, I mean, some of this stuff is public knowledge. So, you know, I know there's been photos of Chris Shores using at least one of the tools that's coming out. Um uh, and they were not hiding these tools at all no, at, really? at the open house. Okay. But uh, they're, they haven't officially announced it yet. And I think that uh, uh, Tom likes to keep play it close to the vest just in case something goes wrong of with course. manufacturing at the end of the game. So, yeah, there's definitely some new tools on the way. Uh, and new Lee Nielsen table saw, I hear. Yeah, Lee Nelson table saw. <laughs> it's powered by hand. <laughs> a 24-inch joiner. Um, but actually, Asa is going to Maine later this summer or early fall, and he, I believe, is going to interview Tom Lee Nielsen. He will be interviewing Tom Lee Nielsen for this podcast. Yes. Cool. Um, yeah. It was actually a big surprise, but since you, uh, oh, you sorry. screwed it all No, I'm totally joking. <laughs> um, yeah, he'll be interviewing... Uh, Tom for the podcast. So. Although I'll be going back to Maine before Asa does to that same area. Uh, we're both going to do some stuff with Tim Rousseau, who lives near 
uh, Lino. We got to interview him because he is a funny dude. I could interview him. He's and hilarious. I'm, I might be able to also interview because I'll be going back before Aces, so maybe I should interview Tom Lee Nielsen. So, what is the 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 factory floor at Lee Nielsen uh, like? I mean, how big a space are we talking about? And what, well, what, it's what not kind of... a single space. It's a bunch of small rooms mm-hmm. in a long building. Mm-hmm. And uh, each room is dedicated to a different activity. So, uh, you know, it depends on which room. I think, you know, there's like a, a room where they take the castings and they, after they've uh, powder coated them, they mill the areas that have to be milled and things like that. So I know they now have the factory arranged so that everything comes in at the back end of the factory. And then it works its way up to the front. And at the front, it's more or less par- It's more or less across the little drive from the shipping department. Mm-hmm. So it sort of works its way up to the front, and then it comes out and goes over to the shipping department. Uh, do they do all their own castings? They do. Not, they do not do the castings okay. of the. That, that's what I figured. Okay. It's done in Maine and Massachusetts, I believe. They started at one point when they started. They were doing their own castings. They were doing their bronze castings. Okay. They were not doing the uh, bronze. I take. I believe iron. is is easier to cast than uh, is easier to work with than iron. That that's always been my understanding. I might be right. full of an unpleasant brown substance when I say that, but. I, as I've understood it, uh, bronze is easier to work with. I don't know if that's are you, are you doing true or not. Heroin? <laughs> no. That's how my dad used to say you're full of beef. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I guess you would say it's a factory, but but it's not it's, like this assembly line with hundreds no. of people making thousands of planes at a time. So yeah. they're pretty small batches that they're making these tools. Well, in. I think they've, they changed that. Uh, instead of doing like 50 of a tool at a time now, I think they're doing more like 100 of a tool at a right. time. And uh, but also it's, it's not a factory. There are individual human beings working these yes. individual machines, and do you know they have some CNC stuff going on? But you know, it's um, not a big impersonal no Chinese factory. No, it's a bunch of local people working the machines yeah. and making these products. It's local by hands. child labor. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, so Ed. you mentioned yeah. the open house, but but you could go there anytime. Just to is there like you a can. store that you can go check yeah, things? They out? have a showroom there, uh, and uh, you, they have benches in there, and you can use the tools. And any day that they're open, you can go in there to do that and go on a factory tour. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, cool. Any day. Well, you, you really you can take a factory tour whenever you want. You can just show up. Well, they're not. I mean, they probably have them at prescribed times. Okay, during but the you day. probably look online or something. But well, you know, I've been there twice on my own. Uh, yeah, and both times it was more just like, "Hey, can we go on a factory tour?" And they were like, "Yeah, let us find somebody." Yeah, and it took you know me ten or fifteen minutes to free up somebody to do it. But yeah, it's it's well if you're in that area, of Maine, which you should be because it's gorgeous. It's absolutely yeah. one of my favorite places in the country. Uh, it's worth stopping by. I should say this: the the showroom there is very is a very dangerous place. Um, perhaps not so dangerous if you have a limited wallet, as I do. <laughs> right. Um, I was there doing a, a shoot with Tim Rousseau once, and I, on the way home with my videographer, I was like, "Oh, let's uh, let's stop by Lee Nielsen." And I, I went in the showroom, and I mean, I could have dropped a load. Yeah. Um, and instead, I kind of went to pay for my one item that I was able to find that I could afford. And it was like, I'm just um. Let's take that card scraper. Over. Yeah, I know. Same thing. <laughs> these, these visions of glory. When I went, I came back like with an extra plane iron and a holster for my back <laughs> yeah. saw. Right. Nice. I, like, okay. I just got two chisels this time. But the last time I was there, I got the iron miter plane. That sounds like a superhero. The iron miter <laughs> plane. Yeah. He was in the Hall of Justice, wasn't he? He was. My wife gave me that for my 40th birthday. Um, well, 
I see. We uh, any uh, parting words of wisdom on Lee Nielsen? Uh, well, just I mean, got about got it covered. Just so I mean, people understand that's really an educate. They're really educational events that they do. It's about educating people about woodworking. It's worth your weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, it's worth an afternoon because they're a lot of fun. And you meet – there are a lot of great and smart people to meet there and talk about woodworking, especially – woodworkers tend to get isolated in their shops. And it's hard to find other woodworkers to talk to. And I know we don't have that experience here at the magazine, but a lot of woodworkers are that way. And if you go to, like, a Lee Nielsen event, you're going to be surrounded by woodworkers, people who want to geek out on woodworking, and, and it's great. Right. My understanding is they used to do the big – kind of woodworking trade show circuit and have a booth go out and they just stopped doing that they didn't want to do it and they decided just to do their own shows so these things aren't they they don't cater to thousands of people at a time usually it's maybe a hundred couple hundred people you know at, at any given time small venues a lot of times yes. schools woodworking schools and so it's a really intimate experience if there is one in your area go ahead and check it out yeah yeah it's definitely right. it's a great experience i love them well, let's move into our first question of the day, and that is from Dean, and Dean writes, Gentlemen. Well, I, I don't know who he's writing to, then. <laughs> I'm embarking on design and construction of a decent workbench to replace the wholly inadequate, cheesy Sears, quote, deluxe woodworker's bench, end quote, given to me by a well-meaning friend. I have two questions. Number one, Garrett Hack's bench, 30 years in the making, it was featured in an article in the magazine, uses wedged tenons to attach the legs of the trestle ends to the base and top members. Both Matt Kenny's monster bench and Ed Pernick's not-so-big bench attach the legs with doweled stub tenons. This joint is all in compression. The wedge tenon is certainly a superior joining method, but is it necessary... Excuse me, sir? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> but is it really necessary in this application? So that's that's his first question. Let's, let's tackle question that. Number one. I will say that my bench, which is a humble... You know, it's it's of a hum, more humble size. The trestle assembly, I think, is probably only like four feet long. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's attached with um, mortise and tenon joinery. All of it's been pegged. Um, it's one monolithic structure, and it's I've never had any problems with anything moving or racking or anything. It's wonderful. Um, but it's not so big. But it's not so big. Yeah, it's Which means, Matt? The, yeah, so I don't remember how long my tenons were. Uh, in the trestle ends, um, I do, though don't think they were stub tenons. To no. me, a stub tenon is like a half inch. Yeah, they're yeah. Not, I wouldn't say stub through, through, but it's definitely a mortise, right? Tenon. Long enough just, to get a peg. Yeah, yeah they were probably more like uh, one and a half, two inches. Um, the, so uh, on the trestle ends, yeah, there's you don't need to do a, a wedged tenon there. I, it looks very nice. Garrett's bench is beautiful, but it's not necessary. But his is a lot longer. Not as long as mine. Well, we were talking about the. You may want to go the wedge ten route if you had a really long glue up. It was hard to get clamps in. Well, now now we're talking about. He's talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting ahead of. I'm getting ahead of myself. His second point. Yeah, we're talking about the short stretchers that go between the two legs at one end. Yeah. Yeah. If those tenons are through, go ahead and wedge them. Why not? Yes. Um, Do they have to be through? Um, those joints really affect the racking resistance um, as you're facing the bench. And which is almost nil. Almost nil. Maybe sawing, there's a little yes, bit of, yeah. of you know, back and forth movement to the workbench. But really all the planing, all the heavy lifting you're doing on a workbench is on the, the long length. So I think the wedge through tenon, you might be getting a modicum of additional 
resistance against racking, but it's in a direction that isn't all that important. Yeah, I agree. So that brings us to his second point that I was jumping the gun about. He says, um, point two, both Garrett and Matt attach stretchers with draw bolts to allow for seasonal take-up or other movement. Ed glues and pegs the stretchers to the trestle ends, achieving one monolithic structure. Please compare and contrast and advise the preferred construction method. Talk amongst yourselves. That's what I was getting at. Yes. So in my, I have a bench that's not too long. So right. I was able to use um, clamps. clamps, regular clamps, to draw my joinery together, glue it, and peg it. Piece Although, of cake. I think you still needed, what, 48-inch clamps to do that? I needed some expensive, long clamps. Yeah. Um, but a really expensive pipe clamp, Matt? Well, oh, you could use a pipe clamp, all right, too. So, yeah, yeah so the real advantage, I think, of the knockdown bolts that I used is that uh, you don't, then you don't have to clamp up that long stretcher joint. And you can just tighten it with these. Uh, and I, by the way, I've never had to go back and tighten them again. So it was once and done. But uh, even yeah, you, yeah. But who wants to have? You would need probably two big honking pipe clamps sitting around thereafter. What are you ever right. going to use them for? You know. So I was going to suggest draw boring. Draw boring. You could draw bore mm-hmm. to off, uh, offset hole in your uh, mortise wall and your tenon. Yep. And then you bring them together right. with a peg. I think a, a bigger issue, really, with the threaded rod <clears throat> probably comes from commercial benches that are designed to be flat-packed. And so they're, yeah, in essence, knockdown bases. So I, I, I suspect that the whole threaded rod construction is an offshoot from commercial bench construction and not really best practice construction. Oh, we all know that oh, Matt, oh, no. we all know oh, that Matt prefers mass-produced furniture. So, <laughs> I, you know, I think the bottom line is, do you need your base? Is your base so big you need to, to knock it down in order to move it around or get it through a door? Then threaded rods is a good way to go. Well, one, I'm not using threaded rods. Let's let's get technical here. What are you using? The I bed bolts? pins versus the barrel nuts? Yeah, barrel nuts. Okay. Yeah, right. I would never use threaded rod. That's Asa territory. <laughs> Ooh, this is getting nasty. And he's well, not even here to defend himself. He did the bench that he did for with Matt Berger, the for Start Woodworking. Yeah. Yes, I did thought, have. I thought that rod. was your bench. Was he that thought, not your oh, bench? You, oh, Mike, oh, really? We're going to go there. <laughs> this is great. But my bench <laughs> so is about the, the same size as yours. Ed. Yeah, and my base is actually it's narrow enough without the top on to get through a door easily, and I can hoist that thing around. I did like you. I, they're surprisingly light. Yeah. I don't know if I did wedge tenons or just a pin tenon, but it's a glued-up solid base. But I think if you had a big behemoth with four-by-four legs and the thing was too hefty to get around. That needs to be taken apart. Yeah, and I I think the barrel bolts is a really neat way to do it because that is rock solid. Yes, that's I have the barrel bolts system. Yeah, that's what I have. Mine goes together with those weird Ikea screws. It's like a wide. (laughs) Do a little half (laughs) turn. Phillips head to do a half turn. I've had some problems. Right. You yeah, have you? <laughs> it's also particle board. Yeah, I've had a few issues with that particle board. You have the Hurenforfen. The Hurenforfen bench. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. One of our readers who's from that neck of the woods is going to have a problem with our comments here. Um, Listeners. Yes. Um, oh, come on. They love Ikea in Europe, don't they? Farford Nugent. Or, no, that's German. Never yeah. mind. Um, <laughs> uh, so, wait a minute then. So, at the end of the day... Um, threaded rods or bed bolt hardware that really comes down to if you have something really big that you might need to move to another shop in the future or you need to disassemble it or you don't want to have a bunch of eight foot long pipe clamps hanging around no but we just said you could you could draw board easily yes do a couple draw board pins and and lock it 
together just fine. I bought some 10-foot length uh, pipe for my pipe clamps. Yeah. And I cut them. So out of two pieces of 10-foot length pipe, I have two 6-foot pipe clamps and two 4-foot. Yes, I also have done things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you could use pipe clamps. But pipe clamps, the the little jaws on them usually are only like an inch. And it's hard to, you know, so you need two per joint then. Yes. So, and if you're going to glue, if you have a stretcher at the top and a stretcher at the bottom, that means you need four. Yes. So now you're looking at uh, probably, it's like 20 bucks for a pipe clamp. So you're looking at 80 bucks for pipe clamp, just the jaws, and then another probably 15 bucks per pipe. So you're starting to get... Yeah, iron pipe is not... It's not cheap. Not cheap. Well, I mean, compared yeah. to like a regular clamp, it's a, it's a, it's less it's than a good a, value. It's, it's than a yeah. parallel jaw clamp. Right. Although, you know, a, a, a long parallel jaw clamp, like a 48-inch one, is probably in the neighborhood of 55 50 bucks. bucks. Yeah. It's really not that much different. Then you have a nice parallel jaw Ooh, clamp afterwards. Mike's giving you the stink eye right now. I just yeah. saw that. Those were like what? daggers. Like, what? What was that about? Going into your soul. Man. I like my pipe clamps. Do you? Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. All right, listen. He had one more hack bonus question. <laughs> and that was, what are your thoughts on round versus square dog holes? Oh, good Lord. I don't have any This thoughts. is one of those things that uh, my honest answer is, who gives a rat's behind? Well, I kind of feel like I what's like, the... I, you can give you know, reasons for and against. Well, like in favor of each. I will say this. I like the round ones for the same reason you like the round ones, I think, Matt, because they also double for holdfasts. Well, I don't use dogs at all on my bench. All I have is holdfast holes. That's all you have? Yep. Because okay. I don't have a tail vice. But I remember you remarking about this in our pre-show meeting. Well, yeah. It depends. You know, there's... there's Round dog holes are easy because you can wait till the bench is assembled and then you can drill them. Square dog holes are easy because you can dado uh, a dog strip before you glue up the bench top and glue up your bench top and they're there. Yeah. I like square dogs, so nice wooden dogs with a little spring thing on the mm-hmm. side. A really nice square dog is really cool. Like you said, the round ones are easy to retrofit a bench with round dog holes. But I think what I hear you saying is you like, I can see, y'all can't see Mike's face, but I can see Mike's face when he's saying this. I think it's you like the square ones with the springies because they're romantic. It's the romance of woodworking. Uh they just work well. I like the square face. Yes, that's I, good. I like the wood instead of the metal. And those round ones, they always, you drill a three-quarter hole, you put those things in. And, and for me, the fit is just like too tight. You got to kind of wedge them in, and if they go down, well, you're obviously not putting them in correctly. And if you don't have easy access from underneath the bench to to pop them up, like yeah. there's always that one hole that's like over your vice hardware that you can't get to. Yes. Or I've made the mistake of drilling a hole like through there where, right above my vice, it's blocked out for the vice, so there's like an extra wooden block. Yep. yep. So I have a hole that's non through, and mm-hmm. then that thing fills up with sawdust. Right. Or worse yet, you push the dog down into it and you can't get it out. But that would happen with a square one too. Yes, but it wouldn't be there. <laughs> it wouldn't be there. Yes. But round ones are nice if you work a lot with uh, round or odd-shaped parts because mm-hmm. you can always rotate it to That's always true. be square to the edge of the piece that you're you're clamping in the dogs. Mm-hmm. You know what I do? I do have round dog holes. You know what I like better than the than the available sort of brass dogs or plastic dogs in the market? I get a piece of square stock and turn around tenon on it. Sure. 
and just stick those. Actually, I learned that from Phil Lowe. But I got a, yeah. a bunch of those things around. They work great because they spin too, but you have the wood instead of the metal, and you can cut them off at different heights. Yeah, you can make, you take a round dowel that fits into the round hole, and then you square, you glue on a square piece on top. Oh, I just turn it. Uh, well, you could turn it too. Yeah. yeah. And then you can have them, yeah, you can have them different heights. Right. Uh, yeah, that's nice. All right. Very nice. <laughs> what the hell is that? All right, let's head to the next question. It comes from Greg, and Greg writes, I'm in the process of building the Boarm Morris chair, shown in the video with Greg Paolini. The only difference is I'm making it out of quarter sawn red oak, which I got from a tree that had fallen on a college campus near my home. It's been air-dried for over two years. My question is, I want to know what the best finish would be. I want the fumed look, but not too dark, as we live in a log home. Should I use a dye first, followed up by an oil-based stain, then a top coat of shellac? Um, that's, so a, that's a good way to go. He's referring to, and I don't remember, Nancy Hiller. That's the author. Nancy Hiller did a Arts and Crafts Finish. Jeff Jewett did a great yeah. article on an Arts and Crafts Finish. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you could try fuming it. I don't think I've tried fuming We've done oak. some experimentation with that around these parts. Yeah. And uh, it, it varies. Uh, we did a leg, uh, like a arts and crafts, like a leg that he's making for the bow arm, the right. same way Greg does it, out of red oak. And it fumed very nice. It looked really nice. And it wasn't too dark. Um, uh, one of our art editors, Kelly, recently made a table out of red oak. And uh, it's from the same lot the other stuff was made from, and it, di right. and it didn't fume as well. Well, that's the thing. Even within the same species, like white oak, from board to board, depending on the tanning content, they'll right. fume very, very differently. So sometimes doing like a, a stain method, if you really want an even look, and you are not don't have the luxury of starting with all your boards from the same log, um, it's a good way to go. And he mentioned a dye and a stain, and that's a, a good thing because any open poured wood like oak – Basically, the dye is adding sort of an overall color, um, not necessarily always getting into the pores, and the stain is going to lodge into the pores and give you that really nice pop. Yeah, yeah, and we have run good recipes by Nancy Hiller. That's the one I did on my coffee table Jeff, and my end table. Jeff Jewett. Jeff Jewett, and actually Peter Gedry's and did Peter an article Gedry's. of like three different recipes for yeah. dye and stain combinations. What you need to do is you need to get your one part B, your one part yeah. turpentine, your four parts beeswax, your right. four parts uh, dinosaur the blood. The important thing is always uh, <laughs> practice on a sample board, dial in the color before you actually, I've, you know, I don't know. That's the advice. You, you, know, you give it out every single time, but I've actually Just taken a finish right to a piece of Live dangerously, baby. Yeah. Live dangerously. hasn't always worked out <laughs> No, well. it doesn't. The title but. of Mike's best-selling book, Danger, My Ally. <laughs> um, Living Dangerously in the World of Wood Finishes by Mike Pekovich. <laughs> All right, dangerous fellows, let's move on to our first segment of the day, and that's going to be Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we cop to our most boneheaded, foolhardy, and just plain dumb moves in the shop. Um... I'm going to start with the M&Ms. Matt and Mike, you the gentlemen figure out who goes first. Uh, why don't you go first, Mike, because okay. yours is less <laughs> egregious than mine. This is, this is uh, very fresh and, and somewhat painful. I said less I egregious. Yeah. Actually, I'm preparing to head out to uh, Indiana to teach at Mark Adams next week. Um, and in addition to a week-long class, I'm doing a one-day class on essential bench jigs for hand tools. Awesome. You know, so I pitched this idea like a year ago. I know. Do a one-day class. We'll do five jigs, bench hook, saw hook, shooting board, adjustable fence, and it'll be great. 
And it's like, yeah, do it. And now it's like, you know, a couple of weeks back, it's like, oh, we're going to do all this in, in one day. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to really prep for this class. I'm going to get all this stock, you know, all this plywood, MDF, solid wood, all this stuff. And I'm going to like pre-make all the, the components. And we're just going to be able to put all these things together. It's going to be an awesome day. So I go about it. It was heavy lifting, but I was really strategic about, you know, doing all of the operations and all the stock while the stock was as big as possible. Like for the little shooting boards and stuff, I left big long strips. I did my datoing for the fences and cleats and all that and then cut them down to size. So it was really clean. I was making 14 sets of five bench jig components, tons and tons of parts. And then I thought, you know, I better check to make sure that the class size is 14 people. So I went online and it said maximum class size, 18 people. Ouch. It's like, Oh, no. So I called them up and said, well, wait, maybe not a lot of people signed up for the class. So I called up and said, well, yeah, as it stands, you know, we've got 13 people signed up. It's like, ah, it's like, okay, I could show up with 14 sets. But if I do that, I know more people are going to show up. I said, no, I got to bite the bullet and I got to make an extra four sets plus one demo set. And it wasn't just like. 30% 30% more work. It was like another 100% more work because I had to start from scratch right. and reset up everything and plus find all the materials left over from all the scraps in my shop as well as a few trips to the local home center to get even more stuff. But it was one of those bonehead things where it just sucked. And that, that added work, it was literally twice as much work for just having to make a, a few more components. And the worst part is is uh, that now actually seven people have canceled from the class. <laughs> so you only have six. <laughs> well, Matt. Guess I, what everyone in Mike's family is getting for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> Shooting Shoot boards. boards for everyone. <laughs> it's an MDF cutting board. Give it a try. <laughs> right. Well, my, my smooth move is uh, – also related to a class, a woodworking class. I was actually teaching a couple... This one, I just want to tell people, it just made me proud, Matt. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, so I was teaching at a place called Peters Valley Craft Center in New Jersey uh, a couple of weekends ago. It was like the weekend, it was the, the days leading up to July 4th. And uh, we were making a little wall cabinet that I make. And... Um, there were seven students in the class, which is a, a, quite a few students to have making a project all at once. And um, I normally try to build along with my students so that I always have something to demonstrate on. Right. And also so I have something to do. And uh, But it, in this class, it just got to the point where uh, I, I didn't have time to get and work on my own. So... I was helping the students all along, using theirs to demonstrate and so forth. And But eventually I was able to get my dovetails cut, and I got the case together. And these were, I mean, beautiful dovetails, probably the best dovetails I've ever cut. I mean, they were perfect. Wow. Did you use the tape trick? Perfect. I did not use the tape trick. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Mike Pekovich patent. I was just wondering. Uh, the Mike Pekovich tape trick, uh, trademarked, by the way. <laughs> 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 Patented. Um and uh, what was I talking about? Oh, so Your I, perfect dovetails. Perfect dovetails. So the class is over. All the students go home. They're all happy. And uh, I've only gotten a few threatening letters since then. But um, I decided, you know what? I'm going to finish making this cabinet. And uh, so I 
needed to route some dados for the shelf and then the two little dividers for the drawers. So I do that and I realize, well, I just messed up because I routed the dados for the shelf too long. So now I was stuck having the shelf that I didn't wasn't part of the original design, a wider shelf than I wanted. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to do that. I'm going to see how it works. I'm going to see what it looks like. This is a little sure. experimentation. That's no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. So that was your smooth move. Well, I wish that was it. Okay. Yeah. So normally when I make a dovetailed cabinet like this, I glue up the, the carcass. Yeah. And then I route a rabbit for the back. Hmm. And that's always how I do it. How do you do that? Do you do it like upside down on a router table with a yes. with a rabbiting bit or something yep. like that? Yep. I used to just try to balance a router on that little skinny edge on the back yep. of the cabinet. That's one way you could do it. It didn't work out very well. <laughs> if you wanted to mess it up. <laughs> but yeah, I normally turn it over on my router table. Yeah. I, you know, because when I made my router table, some of the things I thought about were things that I like that that I do. Right. So I have a really big top uh, and other things that I do uh, to make make it easier to, use, to have a router table that accommodates the things that I do. But anyways, um, so I, I, but I said, you know what, this time I'm going to try routing the back, routing for the back before I glue it up. Sure. And I'll sense. just stop short of the dovetails and then square it up later. So you can go through on two of, two of the pieces. And on just the stop tail short. boards. Okay. And then stop short on the pin boards. Right. Um, so I go over, set up my router table, zip, 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 and it's all done. I go back to my bench, and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to dry fit it one more time. So I grab the first two parts, and I realize, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I ended up routing the rabbit for the back on the front inside edge <laughs> of one of the sides and on the outside top edge of, like, the top or the bottom, you know, the outside back edge, I should say. So it was straight into the burn pile for the wow. winter. I salute you. Yes, I know. <laughs> I feel like such an idiot. But here's you know. So here's what I did wrong. You know, let me analyze this. Let's break it down. Sure. Okay. All right, John Madden style. Where's my telestrator? <laughs> First of all, that day I was tired. I had come home from work and I was tired. Excuse. Yes. Secondly, I did not mark any of my parts like outside, mm. inside, or anything. Third, you'd been drinking heavily that afternoon. Third, I was completely <laughs> wasted. I'd been drinking uh, <laughs> what, is that, what is that stuff the uh, in the green bottle? Nyquil. Uh, I'd been drinking Nyquil like <laughs> mad in Robitussin. and I was roboing like crazy. <laughs> uh, no, I was tired. I didn't mark my parts, and I was working too fast. Yeah. Yep. Well. What's yours? Ed? That's probably the one of the dumbest things I've ever done in the shop. I, but I, I think, think everybody has rabbited or dadoed apart on the wrong yeah. side. I mean, that's so common, though. You should have glued it you up know? as is. <laughs> like brought it to work. Like, I don't understand what's going on what's, here. What, what's wrong? What, there's the back wrong. won't fit in. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to mix things up and make mine, my uh, smooth move th this week into a bit of a challenge. So, as you know, every once in a while I give away bench cookies. Unfortunately, I had about half a dozen sets of bench cookies left. Um, but the movers who packed us up to move us from one building to the other building recently uh, seem to have, air quotes, forgotten my bench cookies. They're they, such a hot commodity. They ate them. <laughs> they <laughs> ate them. So, it's going to get even better, folks. Yeah. Uh, I'm offering up one copy 
of a fine woodworking DVD archive that I've got burning what? a hole in the shelf in my office. Dude, that's a ninety nine ninety nine value. Yeah. But I haven't given anything away in a long time on Shop Talk Live, so I figure like it, it's okay. I'm making up for lost time. Wow. So here's how this works. Uh, earlier this week, I posted a blog called Adventures in Banding. I had I wanted to gauge how popular um, the topic of learning how to do banding properly by somebody like Steve Lotta would be, because um, I'm considering doing a few videos, cool. hopefully with him. And um, so I went in the shops like, yeah, I'm going to make some like, I don't know, what's a real typical banding style from the federal period? I was like, I'm going to do like barber pole bandings. You know, you've got um, uh, contrasting colors of woods at a 45-degree angle sandwiched between um, two thin layers of other wood, right? Barber pole. So I went in, and typically when you start to make bandings, you take two contrasting woods and you glue them together and alternating, you know, alternating dark light, dark light, dark light in a block, and you saw it, and you lay them out, and you put them in the sandwich, and you glue it all together, blah, blah, blah. So I did this whole blog on how to do it. I did something wrong. I'm not going to tell you what I did. I did not point it out in the blog, um, but if you have a sharp eye, you'll notice it. So go to finewoodworking.com slash blogs. Look for the post by me um, called Adventures in Banding and see if you can figure out what I screwed up. And the hint here is that it's not necessarily a screw-up. Yes, it is. It's, well, it is, but <laughs> no, it's, it's not a deal-breaker in terms of using it. Um, so see if you can figure it out. That's not um, what Phil Lowe called me earlier today. And <laughs> he said, can you believe this business? <laughs> it's going to pot. Uh, so... And here's how I'm going to make it even more interesting. This was Matt's idea. Um, well, here's, Matt, here's go ahead. Well, here's one. You say you did one thing wrong, mm-hmm. and most likely that's correct. But there's a chance you did more than one thing wrong. So I think not only and also no. to add some spice to it, just to make it fun. Instead of awarding this to like the first person that emails with the correct answer mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. picking randomly from right. all the correct answers. Whoever responds, right? Uh-huh. You're just going to pick someone in a completely arbitrary and capricious and, manner yes. and give unfair, them the DVD. Unfair as can be. Like, Matt, I like the cut of your jib. That's right. Here's a DVD archive. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and then we'll get emails about how it wasn't fair. And be like, but we told you we it wasn't going to be fair. We told you it was unfair. <laughs> We're trying to mix it up here. So whoever can figure it out, just send an email in to shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. Tell me what I botched up in my Adventures in Banding blog, and we're going to pick somebody in an unfair and capricious manner, absurd manner, uh, to get a, a DVD archive. It might not be this year's DVD archive. It might be last year's. I don't remember which year I have in my um, office. And it might be a but, fine uh, gardening DVD yes, archive. It might be no, it will not. Be, I, it will, I, won't, I won't mess you guys up that much. But, um, but I have a few of these floating around, so I figured, ah, make this interesting. Um, so with that, uh, let's move on to our next question. It comes from Peter, and Peter writes, I live in Denmark, where hollow chisel mortisers are rarely used, but it's easy to find a quality used slot mortiser with bits for around 600 bucks, whereas small, flimsy benchtop hollow chisel mortisers start at double that price. What should I go with? I don't currently use or plan to use floating tenons, but I'm still drawn towards the slot mortisers. Can you help me with some perspective? Uh, so he's talking about a horizontal mortising machine. Um, yeah, they had standalone kind. In fact, a lot of our authors have those. I think it's a Grigio Italian slot mortiser. That's one company that makes them, yeah. Um, and now, like a lot of combination machines, you can, you can get, get that as an attachment. Too. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I think the guy sort of answered his question. It's Peter, right? Peter. Peter. Yep. He answered his question. It, it, when given the option between a less expensive, better quality machine and a more expensive, lower quality machine. Yeah, this is a no-brainer, Peter. You go with the better quality, <laughs> less expensive. And they are fun machines. We had one in when I was in college at RIT. They had one in the in the workshop there, and it, that was a fun machine, man. You could cut joinery so fast. So yeah. basically, <laughs> it's a horizontally mounted, in essence, router bed or end mill bed, something like an this. End mill bed or something. An end mill, yeah. There's a table the workpiece clamps to with a little XY. XY axis. You can go back and forth and in, in and out to make the cut. Yeah, and it's got the, built-in stops. So and, the real question, yeah. I mean, I, the, I think the guy's real. What's what's holding him up is that the slot mortiser routes a mortise that has round ends. Yeah, and. You, there's two ways to handle that. You know, one is you could just go whole hog and do total loose tenons. Sure, go ahead yeah. and route the the ends of your cross pieces instead of cut tenons on them. Right. Yeah, yeah. and just use uh, slip tenons that fit in there, or you can just square up uh, the mortises after you've made them. Right, or round off the tenons after you cut them. I would square up the mortise. It seems like it goes fifty fifty for the people who either route tenons or do this sort of the thing. Mm-hmm. I think I would just I, I just have a whole ton of floating tenon stock laying yeah. around the shop. I mean that's ultimately what I would do is a bunch of loose tenons because yeah. they're very strong. So just, you know, yeah. right? And honestly, if I'm going to do that, I would seriously look into getting a domino, which is in essence sort of a handheld, you know, yes. uh, tenoning machine. Those things are awesome. They come in the big size has like the bigger. Yeah, uh, tenons for more furniture size but parts. The big one would would be twice the price that he's talking about for the slot mortisers. Hmm. But and uh, if you end up not liking it, send it to me, Peter. Yes, send, write a question on it and mail it to Ed Turner, right. sixty three South Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> to laugh like the car talk guys. That's right. Um, that was scary. It was, <laughs> yeah, they had like very maniacal laughter. I remember. I well, one of them show. last thing was. <laughs> <laughs> like every, <laughs> yes, he does like that. It's like he love snorts that. a lot. I love it. Yeah. I hope they listen to this podcast. Oh, I know I'm sure they, they, I'm sure they, they do. do. Yeah. yeah, nothing better. Oh yeah, do. of course. Yeah. Hey, listen, they're retired now. Um, yes. They could be woodworking. Yeah. Um. Anyhow, uh, so let's move on to a question from Liz, and Liz writes, "Help! I am now the happy owner of a table saw. I'm making a small bookcase for a neighbor. My problem is measuring and cutting the trim around the top." The neighbor wanted to keep costs down, so I'm working with plywood for the first time. I'm a bit dyslexic and have gone through eight feet of trim cut in the wrong direction. A sixteenth of an inch too short. I wasn't charging much and am bordering on the red in profits right now. How on earth do I measure the length of the wood I need and get it cut to the size on my table saw? Do I measure the short end or the long overextending end of the miters? What is going on here? Uh, So, gentlemen, Uh, I have my method. Well, in you guys si- want to go first? Well, first, just in, in sort of rough sizing your stock, if you just measure the perimeter of the top, measure the sides and the length, and think, oh, that's how much trim I need. No, you don't, because by the time you miter that, all those pieces are going to be extra long. So as, as a rough estimate, whatever the, the width of your, your trim stock is, you need to add that dimension to each end. So if your top is 24 inches, you have a 2-inch wide trim, that would be, you know, minimum 28-inch piece of stock. Make it 30. Make it 30. Now that's a good place to start. Yeah, and then uh, assuming that you have trim on three, molding on three sides, sure. not on the back. Okay. Right? Uh, I would start on the two short ends because that's a flat, you have a one flat end, and that's really right. easy. To, uh, cut it straight. Yeah. Leave and, it long in the back. 
you, you yeah you can leave it long in the back so yeah. you have uh you can always uh um if you mess up the front right. you can keep working right so then what i would is i when i do stuff like this i often will lightly draw the miter out in a pencil on the piece. That's exactly what I do. So you yeah. know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to show you, okay, here's the here's the long pointy end out that's farthest away from the cabinet, and here's the part that's right at the cabinet. And what I would do is start on an end and mark directly from the cabinet. Yes. And this is where I want the inside of my molding to be cut. And but you I would, cut one end, miter one end, mark the other end, but mark it a little bit longer. No, no, I mean, no, no. I you're, you're getting ahead up. of the game. I'm talking about on the ends where you only have one mitered. Oh, okay. Face. One flat and one mitered. Yeah, I mean, those aren't too difficult. No. You miter that, and then you put it up there. You get those two, and you line them up with the front edge of your cabinet so that the miter's in the right place. And then you work on the one in the middle. And you just have to, you know, I, do, I would. But for the one in the middle, that's what I'm getting at. You cut one end, miter one end. And then mark the opposite end, mark it from reality, you know, holding it against the case, but mark it a little bit long. And then I've I've always had good luck working my way in. Like I'll I'll cut it a little long. I'll do a test fit. Yeah, it's long. I cut like a half a kerf off. Test it again. It's getting better, but it's a little long. Cut a little bit more until it boom. And I mean, I use a shooting board, quite frankly, for the last yes fitting. I don't think you have to have to go that crazy. Well, but. if you know if that's the most accurate way to dial it in. You could do that. The other thing you could do is if you are cutting your miters with, uh, let's say, a chop saw or a table saw, uh, I would use a stop block. Mm. And then when I wanted a little bit shorter, I would, say, get a piece of notebook paper and put that in between the stop block and the end of my workpiece. And that would push it out the thickness of a – so you could trim it just a little bit at a time by – Adding just little slivers of paper or business card. It's kind of, I mean, you need, like for a chop saw, I don't have a long fence on my chop saw. So if I have that other mitered end sticking way out in space, I couldn't really use that. No, technique. but most, but it, I mean, yeah, I guess this could be a colossal bookcase, you know, really long. If but. you cut it a little short, you can always, a little plastic wood and a spatula just kind of right. right in there, you know. What? Plastic wood. You ever seen that? What? Plastic <laughs> wood. What? <laughs> Spackle? I don't know. What? <laughs> Ed, you can leave now. <laughs> no, but are we right on the technique, Mike? Is that how um, you do it? Well, Mike's going to tell us the right way to do it now. Tell us we're totally wrong. This is really tough. It seems easy in concept. You know, mitered stock around the edges, no problem. Um, so that first side, getting that first side in place, that front to back alignment has to be dead on. Yes. Otherwise, as the front comes in, it could either stop short or sort of overhang at the, the point a little bit. Right. So you have a, a spare a scrap piece of stock with a miter on it. And I'm positioning the piece on the side front to back. You're sliding this, this scrap along the front edge into it, and you can move that side piece front to back until they line up exactly where they need to be. That's where you attach the side piece. And from there, I would go start on the long edge the front piece, miter one edge that butts there, put the other side on, mark it, cut it a little bit long, <clears throat> and then use another scrap with a miter, slide it along the side up to the front piece and dial in that fit on the front, get that exactly right. And then that last piece is really easy because it just matches up to the front. You just scribe the back where it's flush with the back of the case and you're good to go. That's, that's right. one technique. Pekovich wins. <laughs> that's Pekovich easier. always wins. No, I think I got that from a Peter Schleybecker article, so I'm not going to take credit for that. Oh, there you go. 
Well, we seem to have a negative theme for our segments this week. We just hmm. did uh, smooth moves where we make fun of ourselves, berate ourselves for yes. stupid shot moves. Uh, and Mike's now, about to lose. our next segment we have... <laughs> Tool bombs. Now, let me explain. In this segment, we talk about um, you know a tool we purchase that a either we purchase some you know stupid anachronism from the Middle Ages that we thought like oh it's so cool I'm going to use that all the time, um, and you never touch it. Or b it could be some really cheesy like you know um, as seen on TV um, you know wonder tool that you thought at the time was like this is so cool and it's just ridiculous or a total piece of garbage yeah so it's um, a tool you either bought and never used because you didn't really have a use for it or you bought and was a piece of junk there you go yes. so um i'm actually struggling to just i don't have one this this week i was gonna say right. listening to matt is my tool bomb <laughs> but uh in reality i don't have one this week so i find myself having to judge which one of yours takes the cake because i feel like both of them could be vying for the top spot Ed, I, I could probably identify four things in your tool in your shop right now <laughs> that are tool bombs. <laughs> go ahead, uh, Matt. All right, all right. Uh, you're gonna go first. Okay, mm, Mike, because mine's cool. Yours is just. Mm, I will give him that. Mine is cool too. Mm. This bomb is is of the earlier variety. A very awesome thing that just hasn't really found a use in my shop yet. I'm and a little embarrassed the, to say. And the best thing about it is you spent a lot of money on it. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. not. Yeah. Um, that's your that's your clue. I uh, <laughs> Back in the day, I had done, uh, it was a piece, um, I think it had some drawer bottoms with some wide bevels on it, or might have had a fielded a raised panel. Uh, for the door, and I thought, wouldn't it be really cool to get one of those carriage makers planes, which is basically a like a jack plane sized plane with a full width blade. Think of that little block rabbit plane that that Lee Nielsen makes in like carriage think, plane, big giant Hello, hand plane with a full width blade. I thought this is exactly what I need to get right into the corners when I hand plane my raised panels or even my drawer bottoms. How cool would that be? Have a dedicated hand plane for my bevel drawer bottoms. Um, mm. So I bought this this wonderful, beautiful hand plane. Mike, why, why uh, finally are you, crafted? Why are you sweating so much? Are you really? You seem really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> just, Is there something you'd like to tell us, Mr. Beckovich? <laughs> no. Okay. So I've I've always balked at the argument that I had too many hand planes, but there is in fact a hand plane that I own that I I actually planes. do not use. Um, I can't think of once when I have used it. Though I'm sure I will find a use for it, so I really hesitate to call this a tool bomb. Um, I listened to you trying to back out mm, of it. Mm, but mm, it mm. is a carriage maker plane with a full width blade that I just realized recently I've never gotten around to using that. Have you ever sharpened it, honed it? You know, I owned it for about 10 years before I actually honed the iron. Ooh, You've had it that God. long? No, I've had it, and that was maybe, yeah, I've had it probably 15 years. And you've never used it? I have never used it. Oh, man. That is a tool that's, bomb. That's a bomb. I mean, no, that's, I just haven't used it. But it's right bomb. there. That, that falls under the purview of tool bombs, Mike. Yes. Yeah, yeah. definitely. A tool that definitely. you bought and never used. That's disgusting. What a waste of a good tool, Mike. Because you bought it, right? Let's, let's emphasize that you bought it. You spent money on it. Yes, I did. Yes, you did. Yes. Would you be more apt to use it if I came into work with a puffy shirt and some buckle shoes? You could kind of dress up and put your later hosen on or whatever that is that they wore back then, and you could go in there and use your carriage maker's I'm plane? I'm just waiting for the right use. 
All right. That's right. It's coming. It's probably to be yeah, head over coming. the head. Yeah. Um, well, I, that's good. I mean, that's a good tool bomb. But Matt? Yeah, because we should point out it's yours. an excellent tool. It's just, an excellent tool. You just don't have the use for it. I imagine it's an excellent tool. <laughs> Matt's is great because it comes straight out of um, the age when guys wore Varney sunglasses and bright neon clothing, and uh, we all listened to Duran Duran. Yes, because oh so many years ago, I think this was in the black and white days of fine woodworking. Probably right about the transition period. But I believe that this was in a black and white issue. Fine woodworking reviewed two Japanese-made tools Ooh, yeah, similar to a thickness planer Ooh. that are they're called super surfacers oh. is what the general class of tool is. Ooh. And it's like a thickness planer, but instead of having a rotating head with three knives, it has a stationary head with one colossal knife similar to a giant plane blade. It's the world's skewed biggest at, plane yeah, iron. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. is. And it's skewed at an angle, right? It's you a, can skew it at an you angle. You can skew yeah. it. It's okay. a 10-inch wide plane iron. And instead of having uh, like on your planer, it's just got the the metal bed and the and and the 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 rollers and the knives pull the board through, stationary knife, and it's got a conveyor belt on the okay. bottom, like Pulls a wide belt sander kind of a thing, kind of like a wide belt sander, right. yeah. Uh, but uh, so this will the one that I have is a super surfacer. It's made by Hitachi, and it was uh, it was actually the one that was reviewed by Fine Woodworking. Hmm. And must be that some editor at the time bought it, then gave it to a fine home building editor named uh, Chuck Miller. And then when Chuck recently left the company about three or four years ago now, I guess, maybe not even that long ago, and he moved back to California, right. he said, does anybody want this? It's free. I it's, said, no, thanks. <laughs> it's It's free. Yeah, I mean, really? it's that, I can I can sympathize there. It's hard to give up a so especially something called a super surface. And I had seen, I knew what these <laughs> things were, so I was like, yes, I want it. So I went over and picked it up with the help of some other uh, fellows, and uh, it works. I'm sure it does. It runs. It's sitting in the front of my shop, and I, it, but it works fine for, well, for softer woods. Uh, I haven't sharpened the plane blade on okay. it yet. So <laughs> you got to try you. That's a blog, man. You have to try and see if you can send in a nice piece of straight grain cherry. Well, um, you know, like a piece of Doug fir or something would or, be fine. Oh, fir, it would, that would be beautiful. And just, just take the knife out. Look in the local ads for someone who sharpens like scissors and kitchen knives <laughs> and just mail this to them and say, please sharpen this. Well, that's part of the problem is I can't, I can't think how to sharpen this blade. <laughs> it's 10 inches wide. Well, it's I mean, going to be dead flat and really sharp, I imagine. It has to be really insanely sharp. It has to be, right? Uh I think I know. I mean, I'm, what I'm going to do is make a block up that's angled at the correct angle, yeah. and I'll be able to bolt the uh, blade yeah, to it, to the and block. then I can use that and run a. Uh, I'll just have to run like a, my old water stones across it to hone it. Oh, move the stone across the blade. Yeah, move okay. the stone across the blade. Okay. Yeah, but have have it sandwiched between two pieces of wood that will hold the uh, the water stone at the correct angle. Now that right. was. Was that when it came out supposed to marketed to the woodworking industry or to I like trim carpenters and stuff? I think well, I mean, who was going to use? I this? think in Japan, what they use it for, I, I I know for one thing they use it for, I believe, is when they were building temples, which have a lot of big yeah. softwood beams. Yeah, and instead of hand planing that surface, because those are all exposed and you want them to have a nice surface on them, they just run them through these things. But I've seen them 
much the, bigger the than the one like I have. It's like one big continuous ribbon that comes yeah, off Yeah, it's like thing, a right? scroll. We could start making, ooh, it's so cool. We could, I could write articles on, on a scroll. Yes. How cool would that be? All right, Harry Potter. And then seal them with a wax seal. I get a ring with a P on it and just, you know, it'd be fantastic. I could issue decrees yes. about Taunton <laughs> and how, how I've deposed Tom McKenna right. with a big wax seal and a ribbon hanging down. It's an awesome machine, though. I but, challenge you to a duel, sir. But I think the key here, the difference between Mike's tool bomb and my yeah. tool bomb is what? that he paid for his. Oh, I burn. Didn't. Mine was free. All right. Yeah, but yours takes up more real estate in your shop than mine does. It does. But should we bring up the, the miter trimmer? No, that is a useful tool. I disagree with you. <laughs> Mike, have you used that miter trimmer that at cool. all? I tested it out to make sure it worked. It works wonderfully. But where did you test it out? Uh, well, I know where you tested it out. You can't. In my office. In your office. You've yeah. never used it in your shop. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. Yeah. But I plan on using that. Yes. All right. Here we go. I plan on using the uh, super surfacer. Yes. Pipe down there. <laughs> Prashun writes... Whenever questions come up regarding dye or stain, I hear them often used interchangeably. There's a difference between pigment stains and dyes. I think your listeners would benefit from a discussion of the distinction. Apart from the aesthetic differences, dyes usually promoting more grain clarity than pigment stains, the big thing to know is that pigment stains usually contain binders. And those binders lock in the color but also partially seal the wood. This can be a good or bad thing. The absence of a binder means you can add additional coats for depth and darkness and can glue after coloring. But it also means applying a top coat that has a compatible solvent with the dye, shellac or water-based top coats in the case of water or alcohol dyes, can lead to dye movement, lifting, or dilution. Both have their place and should be understood. So, <clears throat> dyes versus stains. Um, I have never used dyes too often i confess the only time i've ever used dyes was with that nancy hiller technique to sort of fake the fumed arts and crafts finish and what nancy does is she takes like an amber uh transtent dye she dyes all the oak which is very jarring and scares the heck out of you when you first put the stuff on because it just makes it like a little too bright like bright <laughs> yellowish amber color yes but then you go over it with a brown stain and it mellows everything out, and everything's very even in color. And then you go over that, if I remember correctly, with an amber shellac, and okay. then your clear coat. That's and right. it, it was a great tech. I mean, it was easy, and it came out beautiful. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about dye and stain, the difference in why you might want to use both or just one or the other. And as a, as a listener pointed out, there are differences. Uh, think of a dye as like grape juice where it's just going to stain something. Um, you know, you stick your finger in grape juice and it's going to come out purple. It's actually, you know, toning the wood. You think of wood as being sort of flat surfaces interrupted by pores, you know, the, in, the, in the wood. Well, the dye is going to cover all the flat surfaces of the board. A pigment stain is basically it's suspended pigment in a solution. So think of like particles of color that on a smooth surface, they'll just skate right over. But in any depression, whether it's a sanding scratch or the pore of the wood, those pigments will lodge into just those areas. So you have a dye which will give you an overall color, whereas a stain is going to sort of pop the grain. It'll also pop tear out and sanding scratches and all that good kind of stuff. And this is why 
when you ask a furniture maker who uses a clear finish, like an oil finish, how far should you sand? They'll say 320, 400, 600, as high as you want to go. If you ask a professional finisher, how far should I sand? They'll say stop at 150. They may even say going beyond that is a waste because you're just burnishing the wood. That's actually not true. But they are not looking for an absence of a scratch pattern. Um, a professional finisher who relies on using dyes and stains wants a consistent uniform scratch pattern in order to get a consistent uniform color from the pigment stains that you're, you're using. Hmm. So um, how do these things work and how can you use them to best effect? On something like curly maple with almost very, very little open pores, but a lot of figure, a dye is gonna color the wood without masking the figure. There's not a lot of pigment getting lodged, obscuring the depth of the grain. So you see like those awesome uh, electric guitars with the fiddleback maple and the sunburst patterns, that's all dye. Um, a pigment uh, for woodworkers can help a dye because like oak, for instance, um, a dye will color the wood. It won't do anything really to the pores. And sometimes the capillary action will actually prohibit the dye from getting into the pores, leaving little white areas where the pores are, whereas a pigment stain will come in and really pop the color of the grain. Um, so they, they're often used in tandem. So. Um, yeah, that's about it. So I say usually coloring wood on a tight grain wood like cherry and maple, typically you just want to stay with a dye stain. Uh, anything else with an open grain, you probably want to mix and match. Even mahogany actually has a very open pore structure, so you'll often dye and stain that. Um, oak, definitely. Um, and as always, try it out on a sample board first and read some articles. Uh, Peter Gedry's did a great article on different recipes for mixing uh, dyes and pigment stains, and it, it gives you a good basic understanding of how these colorants work and how to use them to best effect. All right. Well, guys. Wake up, Matt. I'm done. As you know. Sorry. Yeah. Every week. <laughs> talk of finishing. Always. Matt, Matt <laughs> this is so unprofessional. <laughs> Matt, as you know, every week we get a lot of comments in our iTunes store page. <laughs> What's and, that? Uh, what? And as you know, Matt, we like to read a few every week. I've got a couple for this week. The first one comes from Survive Style, who wrote, Great podcast for sure. Love the back and forth and all the woodworking advice, but I've run out of woodworking podcast backlog. Now I have to wait the full two weeks to listen to new-to-me content. It's kind of like Game of Thrones. So get on it and go weekly. If you need some motivation to do a podcast every week, maybe... Whoa, hold on a minute here. Maybe you could provide a premium version for a fee. I'd pay for it, if it was reasonably priced, of course. Or you can just be lazy chumps and keep it bi-weekly. The only problem with that course of action, uh, charging for the podcast... Oh, man, people would be... P-I-S-S-E-D. Well, there's that. Then also, we wouldn't get the money. Taunton would. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, come on. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> However, if you want to send me an envelope each week. Hey. <laughs> um, you put it behind the third urinal from the left at the Denny's rest stop off <laughs> I-84, exit 10 in, <laughs> in western Connecticut. All right. Um, the next comment came from Shopless in London who wrote, um, a gentleman. I'm sure you tire of hearing it, but your show is outstanding, and I cannot wait for the episodes to arrive on my iPad. I'm on a several-year overseas assignment and sadly separated from my shop. My only contact with my beloved hobby is through your lively and informative discussions and interviews. Thanks so much, and keep up the great work. This past week, you raised the perennial topic of frequency of the podcast. Here we go again. I have heard all the excuses again and again, but I feel you are missing the most relevant item each time you cover this topic. You need to consider your loyal listeners. 
You may not believe it, but we are all important, influential individuals leading very busy and responsible lives. Before you selfishly and irresponsibly move to a weekly podcast schedule, I urge you to think of us. The disruption to our lives and the stress we would endure trying to make time to listen to all that extra material hardly justifies the boost to your egos. You should make it clear that resisting the expansion of the production schedule is because you are thinking of us. What a day that would be. Ah. Eloquent words. Yes. Shopless in London. Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks, ladies and gentlemen, on August 8th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are executive art director Matt Kenny. Hey, wait. And What? I like it. having a little fun. And junior cub reporter Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. <laughs> oh, what a scoop. <laughs> <laughs>